0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change?
1: Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Rosheen Ingle. I hope you've been safely enjoying getting out and about and um, picking up your Christmas presents in various places. I've been out and about in Dublin town the last couple of days and it hasn't been as manic as I thought it might be. So it seems that we are kind of maybe being a bit more careful, picking and choosing what days we go and not going too mad, which I think is a good idea over Christmas. And it seems to be being borne out. I mean, there's been a few cues here and there, but it doesn't seem too crazy. And let's hope it stays that way. And speaking of shopping and Christmas presents, we've decided between now and Christmas to bring you some present ideas with our conversations with women in business, because I know we're all trying to shop local this Christmas and Yes, of course, there's some stuff inevitably we'll be getting from Amazon and other places. But there are so many great Irish products out there that really need our support. So we're going to be talking to one woman today about her business. She started in lockdown. That's in a moment. And later in the episode, we're going to be hearing from Leanne Bell and Sarah Durkin, the two powerhouses who started Waking the Feminists, the movement to increase women's participation in Irish theatre. It started five years ago. And Leon looked back at what was really a seismic time in women's equality in the arts here.
3: Initially, it was a very online based uh, conversation that sprang out of the uh, reaction to the National Theatre's programme for 2016. So obviously, 2016 was the big uh, commemorative year for the centenary. And when the Abbey announced this programme at the end of 2015, I happened to be looking online. I happened to be at my computer and I noticed I started counting. "Mm, There aren't so many uh, women's names in this in this announcement. So I started counting how many people there were.
2: But first, a short chat with Cara Dunn of Cara Luna Designs, which is a small Irish design studio with values of eco-friendliness, inclusivity and non-binary representation at its heart. And this, of course, means that Cara creates cards and products that will suit all the wonderful all the diverse people in your life. And she spoke to me about starting a business in lockdown and about her really gorgeous products, including perfect cards and gifts for these socially distant times we're living through. Cara, thank you very much for coming on. We wanted to focus in the lead up to Christmas with uh, women in business in Ireland doing different things. And you have, the word is pivoted of this lockdown and you have pivoted. So tell us about your story in terms of what products that you are selling at the moment.
4: Yeah, so I studied painting and history of art in college and since leaving college then I've been painting and designing and illustrating and basically I decided to kind of go for it this November and launch a design business and kind of separate out the painting and the the greeting cards and illustrations and um, yeah, it kind of came around at the perfect time because people are really kind of searching for a way to connect in different ways and Kind of in heartfelt and genuine ways, um, which I thought, you know, I could probably have a good go at uh, creating something a bit special for people to send each other and kind of share love and uh, care when they can't do in person these days.
2: Well, I had a friend turn 30 um, last week and I gave her one of your cards. And it's a beautiful one with these very socially distant, uh, (laughs) long stemmed champagne glasses (laughs) and they're clinking each other. And it's so funny. (laughs) And you've got um, other ones sending lockdown love. And you've kind of really got leaned into the theme of lockdown uh, and, and sort of seeing where people are and the kind of things that people are saying. It's really nice to have cards that actually reflect where we are now instead of the usual kind of Christmas cards or birthday cards.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, I was kind of inspired. Well, I started doing the birthday lockdown ones just myself, you know, to friends and family. And then um, a pal of mine, Marin, commissioned a kind of bunch to just send to all her friends to say, you know, thinking of you in the lockdown and with the whole little two meters apart. So I thought that was really lovely and that people might actually kind of take up on that idea. And um yeah, just kind of try and find a way to connect when you can't be there just to say, I'm thinking of you and just that, that little bit of extra uh, care and thought has gone into this card. You also do doing face masks. Yeah, I just did a very small run of those um, to send out to people just to kind of experiment with putting some of my illustrations on fabric, which actually worked out really nicely. So, yeah, we'll be looking into doing those and kind of how we can expand on that because way back in my very early days, I used to love fashion and drawing all these weird fashion ladies and things like that, doodles, and um, that'd be something really nice to get into as well.
2: So what else are you doing? The cards, the face mask, have you got any other things on your website that people might like to know about for Christmas gifts?
4: Yeah, we've got a fine art print section, which has a lot of um, really beautiful prints for kind of more substantial gifts. And we also have a calendar, which we just got in last week, which is... Uh, full of lovely um, illustrations throughout the year, for next year. So even if maybe your calendar mightn't be so full, you can be maybe distracted by the lovely art, which will be just above (laughs) all those empty days.
2: Hopefully it'll be a little bit fuller than this one was.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we've got the calendar and the prints and than just a lot of personalised illustrations and drawings and things like that.
2: Well, you're a woman of many talents because we've had you on the podcast before as part of your band, Mongoose. So tell us about yeah. your mu- the musical side of your life.
4: Well, yeah, I've, we've done this podcast before, so it's a bit strange to be here by myself and hogging all the questions, it feels like. But yeah, we've obviously had a very quiet year. We brought out an album there last year called Suck the Wound, and um, we've got two live recordings planned now for this december so they'll be coming out um, mongoose tunes is our online handle <laughs> just if anyone wanted to uh check that out and um yeah just thinking about the business like working with the band has actually taught me so much mainly about marketing which was so invaluable when doing all this kind of stuff um it really kind of got me off on the right foot to try to start the business just knowing how to kind of go about that because it's such a big part of the business you know
2: Hmm. Okay, well, tell everybody where they can get your brilliant designs and how they can get them because they're quite affordable too, aren't they? I mean, they're things that people can buy, and like you say, for a more substantial gift, the art uh, is a great idea.
4: Yeah. Um. So the website is caralunadesigns.com. and I'm also caraluna designs on Instagram and Twitter.
2: Okay, that's very straightforward. And what about you yourself, Car? Because we really want um in the in the run up to Christmas to promote. Irish women in business and, you know, shopping local when, you know, people need it so much more than ever. What are the places that you go to for Christmas gifts or that you'd like to give a bit of a a shout out to?
4: Yeah, I actually, yeah, got some really lovely stuff just with Irish sellers this Christmas. And um, one of them was a place called Divine Passerine. They do enamel pins of these birds and they're just gorgeous kind of artistically created little birds of loads of lovely colours and all this kind of stuff. So I'm kind of I'm kind of giving away my presence that I've gotten people now. So I'll okay. have to tell my family not to listen to this bit. Tell them
2: not to listen to this <laughs> Yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> um, I've also been on reusey.ie. Probably m- people might have heard of that. It's a great website, just full of loads of eco-friendly products Um. a lot of Irish made stuff. And I also was shopping with uh, Laura Barguena Weaves who makes these gorgeous weaves, kind of like wall hangings. Um, And they're just really gorgeous, lovely colours and really kind of striking. And like another little piece for your wall, which would be just, I think, a lovely present. Say her name again. That sounds gorgeous. Yeah, her name is Laura... Barguena,
2: Barguena, and how are you spelling Barguena?
4: It is B-A-R-G-U-E-N-A.
2: Excellent. They sound really nice. And I mean, are you making more of an effort this year? Do you think to to buy Irish and to not try and resist going off on the old Amazon and all the usual places?
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially having having my own little business, I know how kind of important it can be to to get that business uh, if you're a small little shop. So definitely just shopping around and um, there's so like there's so much out there so many amazing shops making beautiful stuff and even online there's loads of kind of compilation lists and accounts just dedicated to uh, especially eco-friendly and Irish made gifts so like once you start looking into it you just you fall into this amazing beautiful uh, whirlpool of great gifts you know to spend all your money yeah, you're
2: definitely selling sure. the card and just to remind people again your wonderful cards and I can personally guarantee they're great I've given a few away and people are so delighted to see cards and things that are themed towards lockdown because it's a very different year and it's nice to have that reflected in the in the cards so that's uh, caralunadesigns.com and Cara Dunn, we're very grateful for you coming on here and talking about it and I hope you have a lovely Christmas yourself
4: thanks so much thanks for having me
2: You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously, organic. Discover a different kind of dark. Thank you very much to Cara Dunn there. And really, I can't recommend her products highly enough. They're so brilliant. So do go and check her out online. Now, when we began this podcast just over five years ago, we hoped it was filling a gap in really looking in a deeper way and giving much more time to issues that affected women. 2015 was a very interesting time for women in Ireland uh, in that one of our first episodes was Tara Flynn and I talking about our abortion stories. And of course, abortion was an issue we on the podcast would return again and again to as we moved towards a referendum and finally that landslide electoral victory for repeal. But also On only our ninth episode, we covered Waking the Feminists and I remember thinking at the time how Leanne Bell's movement, her campaign to increase women's participation in Irish theatre, a movement that began on social media and gained traction all over the world, how it was exactly the kind of conversation the women's podcast was created for. So we gave it the space and the time it deserved and... Now, Waking the Feminist is marking its fifth anniversary. So we wanted to mark it on the podcast too. To talk to us about the findings from a five-year report on the impact of Waking the Feminists, we have Leanne Bell and Sarah Durkin, two women who, it's fair to say, changed many lives, but also had their own lives changed by becoming key figures in this movement for women's equality. It was a pleasure to speak to them and to reminisce about a time that was so pivotal for women in theatre in Ireland. And not just for women in theatre, it felt like the beginning of a really important conversation that has just like it had a domino effect in so many ways across this country. I began by asking Lian to take us back to the very beginning of the movement.
3: It feels like a very long time ago and also a split second. (laughs) Um, It was, initially it was a very online based uh, conversation that sprang out of the reaction to the National Theatre's programme for 2016. So obviously 2016 was the big Uh, commemorative year for the centenary and when the Abbey announced this program at the end of 2015 I happened to be looking online I happened to be at my computer and I noticed I started counting "Mm, there aren't so many uh, women's names in this in this announcement so I started counting how many people there were and very quickly it became clear that out of the 10 productions that they were announcing one was written by a woman and three were directed by women and I kind of slightly blasé, <laughs> uh, went to Facebook. And I just, I had been, I'd had these kind of conversations in the past and we all had, but it had happened sort of behind closed doors. And I wrote a Facebook post that basically said, come on, really, is this, is this good enough? Um, and to my enormous surprise, it absolutely caught fire. It just happened to be the very right moment for people to talk about this. And within hours and then days and then you know the following couple of weeks the whole thing just exploded it became this huge online conversation to begin with Um, there was a huge buy-in from so many women working in all different areas of the of the theatre community from backstage to administration to production to uh, producers to actors de- designers directors so on everybody um was part of the conversation and Within uh, two weeks, we ended up on the Abbey stage. Um, so this is the 12th of November, 2015. And we had our first public meeting, which was sold out uh, the tickets. I mean, we didn't sell the tickets. They were for free, but we put them online and they were gone within seven minutes. Uh, for the entire Abbey Auditorium. And then there were people crammed in the foyer and standing in the bar listening to the to the tannoy. So it was huge. And part of that was to do with um, just being at the right time at the right moment. Um, but also it was to do with a lot of women who were really, and not just women, but men as well, who were exceptionally passionate about this, putting their backs into it very, very quickly. Um, and doing things like getting a lot of... Um, I suppose celebs around the world uh, to tweet their their pictures of support saying I support waking the feminists on you know, on Twitter pictures. And the one I mean, there was a whole slew of them, every day more extraordinary than the last, and then the one that kind of finally tipped us into into minor stardom was Meryl Streep on the morning of that event where, like, my brain was about to explode going, Meryl Streep has just tweeted a message of support. And, you know, there's no better way of getting media attention than having Meryl Streep on your side. So... That, that just gave us such leverage then to actually make proper change happen in the community. You're mm-hmm.
2: really taking me back there, Lena. It's brilliant because I was in the Abbey that day and it was an extraordinary moment and you could just feel it. Do you know when you're in something and you're going, I'll never forget this. This is a really massive happening. But just remind us as well about the WTF because we know it as what the fuck is a, is a way we, we think about WTF and you turned it into Waking the Feminists. How did you come up with that? And you didn't really realise you were coming up with something so iconic. A
3: total fluke. So, well, the <laughs> (laughs) Abby's program was called Waking the Nation. So as soon as that got announced and people started talking about um, uh, how unbalanced it was in terms of representation, there were lots of cracks happening online about, you know, waking half the nation and all this other stuff. And there was this one, uh, one young director called Maeve Stone who wrote Waking the Feminists as a tweet. And then as I was trying to ferry things onto, onto social media, onto, onto Twitter and thinking like, God, I need a hashtag. What will I use? Oh, Awaken the Feminist. She said that. That was great. I'll use that. And um, only later somebody went, oh, that's very good. WTF. And I went, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was pure fluke, but it was so, it was so apt, like with, without really realising it, it, it really encapsulated exactly what it was because so many of us who would have considered ourselves feminists in some shape or form, even us suddenly went, oh my God, what have we been doing all this time? Like, look at this insanity that we've been living in. So it really was a huge awakening.
2: Yeah. Sarah Durkin, coming to you now, just
1: bringing yourself back to that time. What are your memories? Just listening to Liam there. I remember standing beside Lee in, in in the wings of the Abbey and neither of us were really accustomed to being on stage, but uh, she started the meeting and I was co-chairing it with Senator Ivana Bacic. And I think it was the most women that was ever on the Abbey stage at that point. We had 30 women. Um, and we'd spent the previous week um, collating and all of the Amazing testimony, the personal testimony from from all of those women to really make it an impact on, make it unequivocal that this was a problem, um, and and I think that's what really shifted the conversation. And having an aud- audience full of most, mostly women, but not exclusively. Uh, and also the Abbey taking it really seriously. Uh, and, and then as the year went on, other organisations taking it really seriously. Because, are um,
2: like Fiek McNeil, who was the director at the yeah. time and, and who wrote that tweet, um, The Breaks, back to, I think it was to, to Leanne, which, you know, came under a lot of criticism. The fact is that he did and the Abbey did kind of open their arms and really open their arms to the movement, didn't they? When it became apparent that there was this groundswell of, of feeling.
1: They did. They took it very well. It was an incredibly difficult time, I'm, I'm sure, for, for the Abbey. Uh, it was Belinda McKeown, the writer, she was under commission at, at the time and it was her conversation back and forth with Vafio, because he was on the way to the airport that I think tipped a lot of us over the edge of, of getting involved as as well. Uh, so the initial response wasn't necessarily ideal. But from that point on, the, the board of the Abbey really engaged very strongly with us. Um, and were very supportive. They set up a working group led by Loretta Dignam um, and they came back to us a few months later really with uh, very strong recommendations and that's what we wanted. The three key aims of, of Waking the feminists, which we wrote very, very early on, uh, was to ensure that we had policy, action plans, measurable results, equal championing and advancement of women artists and then equal pay for all. And those are still relevant uh, while there's been actually huge progress made since. We're not quite there yet. Um, but I think it's credit to the theatre sector that they took this very seriously um, and got on with the work of of doing it. So from that initial excitement um, and the, actually the sheer terror <laughs> of it, the, the adrenaline that was pumping in, in all of us for those two weeks before that public meeting um, and at every, every point since, because... There was a danger in speaking out this truth because a lot of the ways you've just been batted away in that sort of them's the break. So it's not really a problem. Um, And we had to very carefully think about the setup of that meeting in a way that would change the conversation and use that stage in a way that it had never been used before. And I think, unknown to ourselves, this was just something we did because we all worked in theatre as producers, administrators. Um, the way we did it seemed to hit a nerve, and it, I think it became our wish for it that it would be a catalyst for other organisations and other sectors. Um, and Lena and myself have talked about this: if we could make this thing work better in our sector, in our little area, then perhaps it can have a knock-on effect and knowing the importance of stories and how if you don't have imaginative space to change, then nothing changes. And theatre reflects our world, but it can also push our world. And that goes right back to the foundation of the Abbey in its place in setting up the state. And that's why that 2016 commemoration was so important when you had people like Helena Maloney, um, who were deeply involved in, in the rising in 1916, only been used as marketing, but not their stories been told.
2: Lian, just coming back to you, uh, you've published figures in 2017, which showed just how underrepresented women were in Irish theatre and people were really shocked. And now you're compiling data for a 2020 report. Does it show that this sort of reaction, the shock that we had then, has it led to long-term changes for the better?
3: It definitely has. Um, I think the the statistics that came out that we were able to commission, um, you know, five years ago, didn't surprise anyone greatly <laughs> you know it was it, it was we all knew that this was going on Um, there had never been any statistics compiled in the past so I suppose there were a few cases where it really it really highlighted I think particularly for me the gate was one that really jumped out at the time um, of having a really really poor record of, of women artists um, being employed and we saw very, very quickly within a couple of years, um, certainly when Selena Cartmel took over the gate, very quickly that shifted. And it, she really showed that that kind of um, when there was a will, there's a way, basically, that there are women artists out there. They were waiting, they were ready, they were able to do the job brilliantly. And she just went out and she got them and she hired them. And so I think within, um, I mean, this is going back a couple of years now, but within the first year of her uh, time as director there, she changed it from being, I think it was 8% of directors were female to 80% of the work that was presented in that year was directed by women. So it just really, it really showed that it was possible. But there's, I suppose... The statistics that we've just, um, uh, the researchers have just compiled this time, have shown that across the boards there has been an upswing. Um, obviously, there is still work to do in certain areas, but there has been an incredible, tangible shift um, in a way that I think we were hoping for, but it's just really, really heartening to see the numbers actually backing it up. And Sarah, it's interesting because,
2: like, we haven't seen anything like the kind of lineup that came out in terms of lack of d- gender diversity. It, and it it wasn't just in theatre either. I think it spilled out into the any any festival or any gathering of any kind that was happening. There was a much more. I think what what, what Waking the Feminist did was it opened everyone's eyes to the fact that this wasn't acceptable and that we had to kind of um, talk about it every time it happened. I, I know that there was a, a summer school up in Donegal, I think, that was, they came out with their lineup, but it was very, very male and immediately they they changed it, you know. So there's been a few missteps like that. But Sarah, have you noticed that on a wider context, not just in theatre, that Waking the Feminist kind of changed the conversation or at least started the conversation?
1: Yeah, there's been a whole slew of, I guess, sister groups um, who've come up, uh, Sounding the Feminists, Fair Play, uh, Women in Film and Television, who were working before uh, we were in Waking the Feminists as, as well. But I think... It had uh, a leveraging effect on on all of those movements, um, and that they were able to advance and do some really interesting work. Nonetheless, it's still shocking when you see uh, the the gender count stub coming out about radio. I think issues still in the press. Uh, it certainly opened all of our eyes to to it. So it is surprising every now and again when you do see something crop up and you go, oh, come on, um, you know, man will watch." All of that stuff is is still relevant particularly in the context of COVID, when we've seen uh, protect up to 20 years going back, going that we could be going back 20, 40 years. So while we've made five years of advancement with, with Waking the feminists and in theatre, that the rest of the society, society as a result of the pandemic could be set 20 years back and the effect on women. So it's a very interesting point to look at what that progress is, Hopefully it is deeply embedded and will continue, Um, but there's still an awful lot of work to be done. On a positive note, yeah, it has changed the conversation. People have been brilliant. We now have a methodology for for dealing with this Um, and we, we spent quite a lot of time individually in Waking the Feminist's Uh, doing a lot of research, figuring out how do you do this? How do you move from the intent to advance women to doing it on a day-to-day basis of a policy level into the processes that you have to do and Ultimately, how you change the culture of making culture.
2: Mm. And Lian, it it has changed things in terms of gender, but there's also, again, been a trickle effect. Uh, There's been a discussion about race and class representation as well in in theatre. So do you think um, strides are being made there too, but also what still needs to change, do you think?
3: Absolutely. I think um, from the start, we were very conscious that the feminism we wanted to talk about was intersectional feminism. um, And that unless you... um, change things fundamentally for all people who are currently being excluded from from making theatre or making art, then it's not going to help any of us, really. Um, I do think that conversation has gotten stronger over the years, which is really, really wonderful to to see. Um, Theatre is still generally quite White and quite middle class, Um, and you know, I'm I'm really interested to see what's going to happen in the wake of COVID, because I do think that there are at any moment, same as waking the feminists, at any moment where there's where there has to be structural changes. I think there's a real opportunity to make those structural changes broader and more inclusive of a lot more people. Um, So I think COVID actually might be an interesting point where people start to to look at their accessibility in lots of different ways. there's a, uh, just to say as well, one other thing that was wonderful about um, uh, sort of in the wake of Waking the Feminists that I think hopefully will stand us in good stead is. One of the knock-on effects was that all at the time our, our um, Minister for the Arts asked all of our national cultural institutions to put gender policies in place, which they have. So this fear of sliding back is absolutely real because this, the idea that we naturally advance is, is rubbish, actually. Um, or if, it, if we naturally advance, it's in such tiny increments that it's not going to make any real significance. So there has to be a very strong push and a continuous strong push. And to have those policies in place is a really good, strong marker to make sure that we don't slide back. However, there always has to be accountability. And we haven't quite, I don't know uh, if we've found the best way of doing that yet, but also we haven't um, had to test it yet. So I suppose those policies are just quite new. And in the coming years, it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether those organisations, whether those cultural institutions live up to what they've put out on paper. And if they don't, who are they accountable to? That's a really big question for me.
2: And just go, going back to the Abbey, the current directors are Neil Murray and Graeme McLaren, two men from Wales and Scotland. What have they done uh, to address gender equality during their time there?
1: Well, they have worked uh, closely with with the board. They came in in 2016, um, although 2016 wasn't their programme. So really from 2017, 18, 19. Um, they've worked very closely with the the literary department in in there the new work department they've brought in two new uh, producers uh, Jen Coppinger who was very involved in in waking the feminists is one of their head producers there now um, and they substantially increased the number of commissions for uh, women artists and uh, female directors and i think there's been a big change in 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 the work there over the years so they went from 17 percent writers in in the research to 35% in the last three years and from 20% to 46% in directors. So they're getting close to um, equi- equity there uh, across the board. There are still certain roles a- across all of the theatres that are very highly gendered stage management, costume design, sound design. Um, and one of the things that would interest us is seeing the gender pay gap um, in relation to those across the theatres. I think without that, you can't really tackle the problem. And that's a very simple calculation. So yeah, there has been a a huge change in the programming in the the abbey and the gate. And one of the reasons for the research was to track the level of money that organisations were getting um, in comparison to their gender equity. And originally, it was the more money you had as an organisation or or public money, the less likely you were to programme women. And that has changed, turned on its head over the last uh, few years. Um, and I know the board continue to monitor that. The figures are published in their annual review every year, so it keeps an honest track on things.
2: Leon, I don't know if you saw John Banville's comments recently, where they're not about theatre, but they're about the literary world, where he's talking about the fact that he'd never win the Booker again because he's a, uh, you know, he's a man, he's he's white, he's uh, he's not what they want anymore. And um, have you had any negative? feedback like that over the years that, you know, theatre is a cold house for the traditional sort of male bastion that once dominated. I'd be interested to know, have you had a sort of a John Banville comments directed at you during the time?
3: Remarkably few, actually, although maybe they're happening without me knowing them. <laughs> you know, they're not coming directly at me. <laughs> but yeah, there have, of course, been a few. And I suppose that's always part of the, the conversation is that um in, re- in real terms, if there is a finite amount of stage time and space, um, if we're talking about having more women and more people of colour and more travellers and, you know, people from different social classes occupying that time and space. Yes, the people who were there traditionally, which were, you know, middle class, white, uh, possibly middle aged men, um, their time and space is going to have to reduce. And it's just that's what it is. Obviously, you know, it would be great if we can increase the amount of time and space that there is available for theatre full stop across the board and create more space in general. But I do think that that is, you know, it's a reality. Um, I, I'm really conscious that having men as part of the conversation about gender um, equality is a hugely important thing, because otherwise we end up uh, having the same conversations, women always doing the work, basically, ab- about needing to change things. So I was really heartened the other day. I was talking to Sarah about this yesterday. Um, the the piece in the Irish Times that Malachy Clerken wrote about women, you know, uh, exercising in public spaces and, and feeling unsafe and feeling uncomfortable exercising in public spaces. And it's just lovely to see an article written by a man who understands that this is him talking about his, his own personal penny drop moment, uh, which lots of women might kind of roll their eyes at and be like, oh God, finally. But I do think it's important to see men talking about this and to encourage men to talk about it and to make sure that men attend events and talk about gender equality, understand that they have a role in talking about gender equality and not, that, not just that they uh, should go along out of the goodness of their heart or something, that it's actually <laughs> vital and kind of imperative that they are part of the conversation.
2: Lian, in terms of theatre and in terms of the work that we're going to be seeing and that we have been seeing, as as you say, Selina Cartmell doing incredible stuff there in the gate. But at the heart of it all has to be quality, right? I mean, this always has to be there. This isn't about kind of giving people work or creating space for people just for the sake of it. And I think that's something that's really important to say, too. Uh, the quality uh, benchmark is still as high as ever, you'd hope.
3: Oh, totally. and, and in fact, I would say more because you're drawing on a wider pool of, of excellent artists. Um, and what you're doing in terms of like when you're talking about art and you're talking about narratives and representation, what you're doing is you're actually rich enriching the, uh, the cultural offering, you know, that, the the kind of work that's available then is more interesting to a broader group of people and also gives us a bigger sense of what the world is, a richer sense of what the world is, rather than having the same stories recycled over and over again. Uh, So I think it's a really, like it's actually, it creates a more exciting theatre world. It actually makes it more competitive as,
1: as well because you are drawing from a bigger pool of talent, not just one privileged group that you go back to again and again. So I think it keeps everybody sharp. Um, and to add to Lian's point there, equality is just as important for men and they benefit as much from it uh, as, as women do. So it can't be a one sided conversation.
2: Happy anniversary to both of you. It's five years since a very, very seismic thing happened, not just for Ireland and perhaps what you know beyond Ireland too, but also for yourselves. Before we go, tell us how uh, Waking the Feminist impacted your own lives personally. How did it change you? Because Sarah, I know you went into politics. I don't know if you'd have done that. Maybe before, or maybe you would have.
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) I think (laughs) all of the the training that I got through Waking the Feminist, I went, okay, well, that's the skill set. And as we boil down Waking the Feminist in the end to see it, say it, count it, change it. And once you start seeing it, you can't but see it everywhere. And certainly knowing uh, about the very low representation of women in all of our power structures. You know, politics is also... Where, where it's at. So I, I joined a party, the Social Democrats, that are very inclusive of, of women and have two uh, women leaders. So yeah, that has been a big personal change. I, I don't think I could have done that at all without waking, waking the feminists.
2: And what about you, Liam? Big changes in your life were well, like, you in different directions? I can't directions. even <laughs> begin to
3: describe how massive the changes have been. I mean, from a very personal point of view, I was, you know, I work backstage, essentially. Um, and all of a sudden, I was thrust front and centre and having to do interviews and learn how to speak publicly. So there's been a huge change in my understanding of my own position within the community, for sure. Um, There's a, like, in a lovely way, particularly now, um, five years on, looking back, I have a huge sense of pride for what we all achieved. You know, I've, even though the campaign itself was only a year long, I've kind of been continuing work in sort of very quiet behind the scenes ways ever since, um, And so sometimes I kind of forget the impact that it had. So having this five-year marker to look back and go, oh my God, yeah, you know, this time five years ago, I and lots of the women around me just felt that they couldn't talk about this and felt like it was a dangerous thing to talk about. And now it's become absolutely run of the mill, which I think is a wonderful legacy. The other thing that I'm really proud of is... Um, although it hasn't sort of officially been announced, uh, some of the work I've been doing in the last couple of years has been about securing the legacy of, of Waking the Feminists, which is around getting two archives, one placed in the National Museum, which is the, the physical archive, including our wonderful massive long banner from the front of the Abbey at that meeting. Um, and the other one is to uh, have a digital archive at the, at the National Library of Ireland. So making sure that those... Legacies are embedded in the story of our country um, and are there for posterity and for for other women and interested feminists in the future to to look back and see what kind of work has been going on here and what, what it changed in such a short amount of time.
2: Well, those are wonderful things to come from it, both uh, personally and for the wider movement. So I just want to say again, congratulations on reaching the five years. And as I say, it will always be intertwined in my mind with the beginning of the women's podcast, too, because, again, you were one of the early people we had on. And and it really felt like that's why the podcast is necessary so that we can discuss these things. So it was a real moment for us. So congratulations. And uh, the best of luck with everything you do in the future. Sarah Durkin, Leanne Bell. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much to Leanne Bell and to Sarah Durkin and well done to all involved in Waking the Feminists because it is a vast network of women and men who are continuing and growing this campaign. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roshi Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with that very sound man, JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, shop local, stay safe, wash your hands, all that jazz and I'll talk to you next time.